0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss. History Hits Book Club is back with a bang, and this time we've gone medieval. See what I did there? I'm Matt Lewis, co host of History Hits Gone Medieval podcast, and one of the most interesting guests I've had on was Charles Spencer, author of The Fascinating The White Ship, which retells with thrilling, movie like, heart thumping prose the story of one dark, cold night that forever changed the course of English history. In June and July we're reading The White Ship and book club members get exclusive access to events and info from behind the scenes as we build up to a live Q&A with Charles Spencer which I get the pleasure of hosting. You'll also get free access to other history hit events included with your book club membership as if you needed any other reason to sign up. Join in the fun, learn about history's key moments, people and themes, and join Charles Spencer and I for a live Q&A session in July. You can sign up today by following the link in the description below to start reaping the rewards of membership of History Hit's book club. Hello,
1: and welcome to today's episode of God Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr Kat Jarvin. From wool to leather and silk, spices and gems the Middle Ages saw the European trade in commodities develop exponentially, laying the foundations of the trade that still takes place today. And alongside those complex networks, people interacted across cultures and borders and organized their businesses into increasingly complex systems. And all of this, of course, had hugely significant consequences for the societies involved. But how exactly was all of it organized? International Trade in the Middle Ages is the title of a new book by author Hilary Green. Hilary is the author of several historical novels and in this new book she has taken the extensive research she carried out for background information for her novels to present a highly readable history of medieval trade. Hilary, thank you so much for joining me here on Gone Medieval Today. Thank you for inviting me. So congratulations on the new book. I've just read through it and it's brilliant. Did you enjoy reading it? I did, yes. I found it fascinating. So this focuses very much on the sort of 11th century onwards, really. I mean, you go a little bit earlier than that in the beginning, but it's from that point on that you focus your work. And what was it about trade in Europe at that particular time that interested you?
2: Well, I think that was the time when trade in Europe really started to get going again. After the fall of the Roman Empire, everything got very fragmented, small, conflicting entities fighting each other across Europe, and of course the Roman roads fell into disrepair. The bridges collapsed, the causeways collapsed. People didn't have communications facilities that they needed for good trade. So it was in the 11th century that they started to remedy that. There was a great deal of bridge building at that time. It was regarded as a holy responsibility to create bridges, largely so that pilgrims could get across and go to places like Rome and Compostela. But of course it also facilitated trade. You know about the bridge of Avignon, which was built when a young monk called Benizet had a vision that God wanted him to create a bridge across the Rhone at that point. So obviously, once bridges were there and the roads were improving then merchants could move backwards and forwards much more easily and trade really, really took off.
1: Yeah so you have the sort of logistics there which is something actually that you talk about a bit more in, in the beginning of the book as well so that these sort of trading networks developed to a really quite a vast extent and so bridges, obviously, and the roads, one thing, but how about other modes of transport? I mean, how does this work? You know, What are the sort of key elements of those logistics? Well,
2: I think another very important element was the availability of money. And that th- century, several silver mines were opened. There was a, a silver mine discovered in Cumbria, for example, which allowed English kings to mint large quantities of coins. And that tended to start breaking down the feudal system, because when people could pay for goods and services they weren't tied to the land in the way that they had been the lords who owned the vast estates they didn't have to live on the estate the whole time they could pay for what they wanted and of course the king could settle in one place and open a court and then all the noble lords wanted to flock there to be right there to be get preferment and so on And they built themselves fantastic houses and, of course, it was very important to show that you were just as rich and just as affluent as your rivals, which meant that there was just a tremendous market for luxury goods. So they became focal points for traders. And the availability of cash was a very important element, I think, at that period in getting trade moving.
1: I guess now we're sort of—are we moving into completely coin-based economies, or is barter, an exchange of goods, still uh, something that happens?
2: I think barter probably still worked at the local level, but once you needed anything that you couldn't produce actually on the land, you had to go to the nearest town or city or market to get it, and then you needed money. So I think really barter was quite minor
1: once trade really started to flow. And of course, I suppose once you have those larger economies, then it becomes easier for sort of rulers and kings to control that through things like taxation and coin production as well, I suppose. So, oh, yes, that was very important. Yeah, it's all a sort of big <laughs> knock on effect, I suppose. What about sort of ways of sort of moving goods and things? Is it mainly land based? You talked about bridges now, or how much is, is it sort of water based? Most
2: important was water-based. It was a lot easier, not necessarily quicker, but a lot easier and cheaper to move stuff by water, either by sea, but particularly over rivers. That's where the great rivers of Europe came into their own, and that's why most of the great trade fairs, which were so important at this period, were set up in cities which were on a river.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's a really interesting one, because I, I've looked at the same in the Viking Age, not the same scale, but, you know, on a smaller scale, actually, rivers. I think it's something that we almost forget about in the 21st century, how important the rivers actually have been in the past, isn't it? It's sort of, they get a bit neglected, I suppose.
2: Yes, I think it's a shame, really. I mean, if you go to France or other parts of Europe, you do see a lot more river traffic, huge barges going backwards and forwards. And it seems a much more sensible way of transporting goods to me. Of course, part of the trouble is our rivers are not really big enough on the whole to take big barges.
1: Exactly. That's quite different in in other parts of the continent, isn't it? Because, I mean, we're talking about quite substantial sized rivers that can take that sort of traffic. And another thing you wrote about, which I thought was really interesting, was how when these trading networks are developing and trade is increasing, you see increased needs for administration of all of this as well, because we're not talking just sort of small individual scale anymore, but really quite large scale. And sort of those people involved need to be administered as well. Can you give some examples of how that need was responded to?
2: Well, I think a lot more people became literate and numerate. It was vital if you wanted to be involved in trade of any sort, or if you were working for one of the great kings or lords, uh, an administrator, you had to be able to read and write. So I think the universities came into their own, and of course usually it was only people in clerical orders who could learn to read and write, but it meant that it began to be ordinary laymen, largely men, but women as well, who did find that they
1: needed to read and write yeah and that's such an interesting because we don't necessarily connect those two do we sort of think they're separate but I think you're absolutely right that when those bigger bigger needs are there then actually people have to respond to it I suppose yes quite so in the book then you go through different products and different places and it's a great sort of journey across Europe really and especially talking about some of these commodities and You start out here in England and you start talking about the wool industry. And can you tell me how that came about, how that became such a key export for England in this sort of period? Well, I think
2: the main factor was that English wool was better than any wool that could be obtained on the continent. Better, for example, the Spanish wool. The fleeces were softer and the fibres were longer and better for weaving. And of course, the Cistercian monks who owned huge tracts of land in Yorkshire and Wales and areas like that, they ran these huge herds of sheep. And it was extremely profitable, of course, to run these herds of sheep, shear them and send the wool south to London and then to be exported. But there used to be quite a strong local British weaving industry. But then when the merchants of Flanders and the weavers of Flanders discovered how good English wool was, so much of it went abroad that for a while the English weaving industry more or less faded out. came back later when taxes meant that not so much was getting exported. But I think it's interesting that so many phrases that we use now in common parlance actually come from the wool trade, things like spinster, being an unmarried woman who spins. You spin a yarn. If somebody tells you a story, they might be trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And if you believe them, you could be fleeced. And then if you start worrying about that, what do you do? You can't sleep, you can't sheep. You know, there's so many different phrases. So it just goes to show that the whole wool trade permeated English consciousness. And of course, it's no accident that the Lord High Chancellor
1: sits on the wool sack It was the foundation of English wealth. That's so interesting, isn't it? It's just how it really seeped into all those different aspects of society. And how much do we know about how the wool industry was organised on a more sort of practical level?
2: Well, I think the most important thing there is, of course, the king wanted to be able to get his taxes. So he created London as a staple city which meant that all wool had to be traded through London. I mean, people got round it and illegally exported it from other places, but the majority of it went through London. And it could only be handled by members of the Right Honourable Company of Staplers, who were very wealthy merchants. And it was a very tight thing to get into, you know, not everybody could do it. So a lot of people made a great deal of money out of it and of course it meant that the king knew exactly what was going in and out and he could tax it and the taxes paid for Edward I's wars in Scotland it paid for Edward the wars in France and in order to increase the money he needed for his wars he put the taxes up and it caused such an outcry that he had to put them down again because it was absolutely vital to the well-being of the wealth of so many people
1: that's fantastic. It's really and I think a lot of big buildings and churches and things were essentially funded by a lot of the wool trade, weren't they? Well, of course in a lot of places you get
2: cloth halls. And there aren't many examples of them left in England, but in some continental cities these magnificent buildings which are like palaces but they were there purely for the trading in
1: cloth. So interesting. And So you talk about the wool industry, and then you also talk about some of the related industries to this. And you mentioned weaving a little bit earlier on. And one of the things that the textile and weaving industry was very reliant on is, of course, colour, because you don't want just completely plain textiles, you want them dyed. And how extensive and sort of important was the trade in dyes and the sort of things that people used to dye with? It was crucial for the weavers of
2: Flanders and elsewhere, of course. And some of it could be locally produced. I mean, woad, for example, grows fairly freely and you can get blue dye from that. There's a plant called weld, which again is a wildflower, which produces yellow. You got red from madder, but if you wanted a really good red, you had to go for kermes, which was the eggs of an insect which fed on kermes oaks around the Mediterranean. And so, those were the main basic things of different dyes. Of course, there was purple, but only the imperial family of Constantinople could use that. (laughs) You had to be porphyrogenitus, born in the purple. And the other important thing, of course, was that it had to be fixed. You had to have alum, which fixed the dyes to the fabric. And alum came largely from the Near East and it was imported by the Genoese and the Venetians. And there was a great deal of fighting, basically, about the supplies of alum because it was so important. And when somebody discovered a deposit of alum on the papal loans, that really disrupted the whole trade because suddenly the Pope had this wonderful facility. It gave him an awful lot of money and, of course, it started to cut out the Venetians and the Genoese. So there was a lot of fighting
1: around supplies of alum in those days. So I guess that demonstrates how vulnerable some of these societies or these communities or these groups of people could be to disruption in the trade, doesn't it? And what sort of knock-on effect that could have.
2: Oh, yes, yes. It was a very iffy sort of prospect for everybody.
1: (laughs) Yes. What's well, it's interesting. I mean, we see similar things today with everything that happens around Brexit and when these products are disrupted. And
2: I mean, when the Muslim empire started to spread, of course, it disrupted supplies. And then people had to find different ways of getting around that and bringing stuff into Europe.
1: And I think these things, they have big knock-on effects, haven't they, on just various of groups of people, but also the sort of products, the sort of fashions. Presumably, if you suddenly can't get the products and the colours anymore, then that has a knock-on effect for that too, I suppose.
3: Hi there. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex, scandal in society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed hopping around different time periods from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
0: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am, but Noom worked for me.
3: and more listen to betwixt the sheets the history of sex scandal in society wherever you get your podcasts brought to you by history hit
1: Mentioned some of these kind of quite high status things that are being traded here, and especially that color. But I think, in terms of textiles, another one that I always find very, very interesting is the trade in silk, so opposite end of the spectrum, I suppose, to the wool. And that's, of course, extremely extensively traded as well and highly valued. And we know that the trade, the silk trade, goes back centuries, really. But What about this period in particular that you focus on, who was it that sort of dominated the silk trade from the 11th century onwards?
2: Well, it varied. Initially, it was the Byzantine emperors. They knew that silk came from China. They didn't know how it was produced but they had an alliance with a tribe called the Sogdians, who more or less controlled a lot of the Silk Road, a lot of the routes through the... Of course, it wasn't a road. I mean, people think of the Silk Road as one continuous thing, but it wasn't. It was a series of tracks that went from one oasis to the next oasis, and a merchant would bring his good to market, and then they'd be sold on and brought to the next oasis and so on. But the Sogdians did control quite a lot of that. So the Byzantine emperors made an alliance with them to make sure they got the trade through. But eventually two Nestorian monks smuggled silkworm eggs out of China hidden in the hollow of their staffs and took them to the Emperor Justinian in Constantinople. And from there they were able to set up their own silk trade. For a long time it was exclusive to the imperial household but then as supplies grew, and there were more silkworms bred, they were able to spread out and start silk production in various different parts of the empire. But then of course, when the Muslims spread, they took over the Silk Road. They controlled it, they dominated it for a while. But again, it was always a good idea to keep trade flowing. So they didn't stop it. Sometimes the route changed a bit, depending on who was in charge, who was on top. It went a bit further north or a bit further south, but it kept flowing. And then, of course, along came Genghis Khan. And you might be surprised that he was actually very keen on trade. And he set up posting houses for merchants who were travelling. He planted trees along routes to give people shade. He passed laws against fraud and so on, or stealing, and he made it much safer for people to travel backwards and forward through asia it was known as the pax mongolica and it lasted for quite a long time but then of course when he went that empire broke up then later on you had tamburlaine you No know, timur the lame he was in charge of things for a long while but those people more or less dominated the silk trade until king roger ii of sicily while the emperor was in Constantinople, was distracted by the Crusades, he managed to steal silkworms and took them and set up a silk industry in Sicily. So that was the breakup of the monopoly. And of course, the Crusaders, when they took the Holy Land, they were able to take over several of the places that the Byzantines had set up. And the other thing that happened was that when the sack of Constantinople in 1202, a lot of the operatives who worked in the silk trade fled and they mostly fled to Italy and they settled around the city of Lucca and that became a centre of the European silk trade.
1: I mean it's really quite extraordinary isn't it to think about how clearly so many people have seen the benefit of this trade and seen the benefit of that as a commodity and taking it on and then sort of essentially manipulated the trade a little bit for their own benefit. But this, I mean, so silk clearly was something that there was always quite a lot of wealth in, I guess.
2: Oh, yes. It wasn't something that the peasants could buy.
1: No, (laughs) exactly. So because that exclusivity. And I guess it's also certainly in northwestern Europe, because the production isn't in warmer climates, especially. It becomes one of these luxury, exotic goods as well and I mean there's quite a few other things sort of goods I think that have been traded that you talk about in the book and the other one that sort of appealed to me quite a lot is the trade in, in spices which again goes back quite far but how about that can you tell me about the trade in spices how was that organised? Well
2: they came mostly from the spice islands in the Indian Ocean and they'd be traded by local merchants often Indian merchants and brought to the Red Sea ports like Aden, then they'd be carried on up to, by camel, they would be taken to Mecca or Alexandria, or then maybe further north, the ports like Acre and Tyre. And then of course, the Venetians and the Genoese had their funduks, their foundations in these places, and they would buy the spices and so on. And they were then carried across to Europe in armed galleys because they were so valuable that they couldn't risk sending them in ordinary ships. But the interesting thing is, of course, the secret. Nobody would tell anybody where they actually came from. And there were all sorts of legends to try and put people off the idea of finding them. I mean, cinnamon was supposed to grow on trees that were defended by fire-breathing snakes. All these legends grew up, but uh, eventually, of course, more enterprising merchants started to move out and go to the the Spice Islands and found where they could get the supplies from. But I think it's, lovely. it's very romantic, the idea of coming all that way and on camel trains, through the desert, these mysterious objects that nobody quite
1: understood but were so valuable. Absolutely and I love that and I love sort of thinking about how somebody in Northwestern Europe, how much they knew about the other end of that networks and the journeys that these goods had actually taken. I suppose most of the time it's just going step by step isn't it? So few people are going all the way from A to B.
2: That's right, very few people knew the whole chain. There were a few travellers, a man like Ibn Battuta who was a North African Muslim, he travelled widely and he did find the source of quite a lot of these products and wrote about it but for the ordinary people it was a complete mystery where they came from
1: and that i suppose make them even more exotic and more desirable when they sort of are from those distant locations so these are the kind of more exceptional things i suppose which i suppose for your your average person living in england for example would perhaps not see a lot of uh, at all But you talk about other commodities too that saw quite an extensive trade that perhaps were a little bit more common. And one of those was salt, which I think is something that again, we maybe forget a little bit about now we're sitting here in the 21st century that actually salt was extremely important. So why was it? Well, salt is absolutely vital
2: to life. And it was also vital for preserving meat and preserving fish. So it was a very, very valuable commodity. And Europe is crisscrossed by salt roads where people took salt from where it was produced to important cities and so on. England was lucky because we had salt mines of our own in Cheshire. Towns like Middlewich and Northwich, that which means salt and they were salt producing cities or towns. And also once Henry II married Eleanor Aquitaine, we had access to the salt pans in Gascony, so salt could be brought up from there. Other than that, There were various... I mean, two great cities were founded on salt. Lunenburg and Salzburg were founded because they were actually sitting on salt mountains. And the whole process of producing the salt, boiling it and purifying it, was very, very carefully controlled. And the salt pans were walled off so that people couldn't steal it. And then, of course, there was the Salon Les Bains in France, again, sitting on a salt lake, basically. Interesting, the French taxed salt. It was a very punitive sort of tax. Everybody in France had to buy so much salt every month. It was forced on them and, of course, paid tax. do you know, that lasted right up until the Second World War. Oh,
1: really? I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's something that we, today, we don't really think about salt very much at all. <laughs> absolutely.
2: And yet, I mean, in the medieval era, as the salt cellar was a very important item on the table. And if you were seated below the salt, of course, it meant you were very unimportant. Yeah.
1: So it's interesting, you have these sort of cultural references that relate to it as well. That's right. And I think what's really interesting, what you demonstrate really nicely in your book, and you go into it in one of the latest chapters as well. We've talked about it a little bit already, that these big trading networks, these, you know, all of this has a huge... Impact on so many different things. We talked a little bit about the buildings, for example, earlier on. We talked a little bit about literacy as well. But there's also an impact, as you write about, of people meeting together so that that travel that's involved in all of this actually causes lots of different languages, lots of different cultures to interact and coexist. So we see some very specific impacts of that that you talk about in your book. Can you describe some of those sort of quite direct results? I think the
2: most important thing was that when European merchants came into contact with the Arabic civilization, they were able then to come into contact with a whole field of wisdom and learning which had been completely cut off because when the Roman Empire split into two, the Latin side governed by the Roman Catholic Church they banned the writings of the ancient Greeks because they were pagan. Whereas, in Constantinople, the language was Greek. So the scholars there always had access to the writings of Aristotle and Plato and all the great, great Greek philosophers. And they were then copied and translated. And then when the Arab countries came into contact with them, they took them and translated them into Arabic. And then when British or European merchants went to places like Alexandria or Cairo where these great libraries existed, they came across these documents and got them translated back into Latin. And eventually people started going actually to the Greek originals to translate them. But the thing was that the Arabic culture was so much in advance of medieval Europe. I mean, it feels like medicine, Or astronomy, mathematics, I mean they invented algebra, they invented the concept of zero, built observatories. The grandson of Genghis Khan set up an observatory and got a Persian astronomer to take charge of it and they calculated the length of the year to within a matter of minutes of what we now accept as being the correct answer. And of course, in the field of medicine, people like Avicenna, as he was known in the West, his treatises on medicine really were the basis of medical practice right up until the 17th century. So it really opened up a whole new world of learning. And I think it was that, very largely, which gave an impetus to the Renaissance.
1: One thing that's really obvious reading your book is there are so many great stories here, and there are so many interesting people and so many interesting connections and this I believe is your first non-fiction book isn't it? But actually you're the author of several successful historical novels so writing isn't new to you at all and the background research that you did for this book forms the basis of your latest fiction book which is called Iron Hand. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
2: Well the idea of that was that it was about a boy who was orphaned in the Norman Conquest and had to make his own way in life. So he goes through various phases. He's a seaman for a while, and then a mercenary soldier. And then eventually he starts trading in the Mediterranean and becomes a very wealthy merchant. In the end, he gives it all up to go on the First Crusade, but that's the second book called God's Warrior. But when I started researching that, I found it absolutely fascinating. The different things he was importing and the the conditions that he had to import them under and so on. So that was the basis. And that was what gave me the impetus for this nonfiction book.
1: Fantastic. I mean, there's obviously so much sort of <laughs> overlap, I suppose, in a way. And how did you find that process of writing nonfiction as opposed to writing fiction?
2: I didn't actually find it so very different because all my fiction books have been based on very extensive research. And I really enjoy the research. So that was all part and part of the same thing. And then I tried to give the non-fiction book, not exactly a plot, but a bit of a linear, consecutive feeling so that one thing led to another. So a little bit like plotting the story of a novel. So it wasn't really so very different.
1: That's really interesting to hear, and I can definitely see that. I mean, I very much enjoyed reading it because it's very readable because you sort of pushes the narrative essentially forward, and it is a narrative because all these events and these knock-on effects that you've demonstrated very well now, I think. think happen are essentially a, a narrative as well yes so, that's exactly the way i felt about it i think our listeners should definitely check it out so the book is called international trade in the middle ages written by Hilary green it charts this whole story and tells, tells about all the different goods all the different networks and i would absolutely recommend people check it out so hillary thank you so much for joining me and, and talking about it here today well thank you
2: very much for inviting me
1: So thank you everyone for listening. This has been an episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman and we will be back again with another episode on Saturday and again next Tuesday. In the meantime, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast and also to our Medieval Mondays newsletter. Just look in the episode notes and that will tell you how to do so. So thanks again for listening and I hope you'll join us again soon.